Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to be talking about going first, the courage to lead purposefully and inspire action. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. Leadership creates a strategic advantage and is a key lever to create the world we want to inhabit. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organizations. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted to have on the show today, Nell Derek Debevois, founder and CEO of Inspiring Capital. Nell, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. The quick impact story that I have to share actually goes back to when I was 12 and I was at this awesome urban elementary school, public school in Hartford, Connecticut, where we had really engaged parents and a super diverse student body in terms of demographics, in terms of socioeconomics, different countries, different races, religions. And it was this beautiful example of like what I at least would like to see as public American education. Mm -hmm. The middle school I would have gone to was not so picturesque. It was really violent. There were a lot of gang activity teen pregnancy was an issue. And so education was like the last thing on people's list, right? It just isn't what was happening first and foremost every day. So my parents, you know, very gratefully, luckily had the wherewithal, not a ton of cash, but the wherewithal to say, that's not your path. So I ended up, we, we ended up moving 400 yards over the town line into a leafy suburb where the public schools were excellent and still fairly diverse, not as much as I might've liked but they had AP programs and athletics and a peer mentoring program, right? It was amazingly rich and robust, which launched me off to Harvard and thereon. And, you know, look, not to dismiss my own efforts or talents or my parents' effort, but the school changed everything. I watched my classmates who didn't have the wherewithal to move 400 yards and it was not pretty. Mm-hmm. They just didn't have the support. So that was when I knew that I wanted to have a, a career with impact. And in the you know late 90s, when I was then graduating, that looked like a nonprofit career because that's where, in my mind at least, you had impact. So I spent the first decade of my career in the nonprofit space doing pretty direct international service work, first managing a global network of youth activists who were working in their towns and cities to make change. And then at a community center that I helped to start in the West Bank of Palestine, supporting refugee children and women to get to mental health first and then think about social and economic development. And it was incredible work, right, for so many reasons. But I actually left that and went to business school. And the day I found purpose is the day I left the nonprofit sector, which a lot of people find counterintuitive. And so since then, I've been doing purposeful leadership development, which we'll get much more into. But basically, it is all about helping individuals align their interests, their skills, their loves with the needs of the communities around them. Our flavor of doing this is really one of blending true economic and environmental and social impact. So a true quest for justice with this notion of leadership and meaning at work. Having a clear sense of your individual purpose is a prerequisite for leadership. It takes time and attention to refine our purpose in the me, we, and world dimensions. In other words, we can become healthier, happier, and more effective as individuals. Our teams become more collaborative, creative, and profitable, and the people and planet around us benefit as well. So Nell joins me today to discuss her new book, Going First, Find the Courage to Lead Purposefully and Inspire Action. Nell, thank you first for helping us understand how you got here. What do people get right about purpose and what do they get wrong about purpose? 
what's right is, and especially in these moments, kind of post-crisis, COVID and all the rest, there are so many crises going on right now, it's kind of switched back on this light in our heads, which is biological, neurological drive to contribute to something larger than ourselves. It's one of the main things that sets the human race apart from other species. That light, that little feeling in our tummies or our hearts or brains or wherever it might be coming from is what's behind a lot of what we're seeing today of the great resignation of millions. I think we're nearing 10 million people leaving their jobs just this year. It's not only about the economics, which is real. Wages need to change. But it's about the sense of doing something that matters and being reminded of that on a daily basis. So I think we're, we're getting that right in some way because we're looking for it more and more. What's still wrong that I want to see change in coming years or days, I'm not very patient, so I would like to see it change quickly, is this notion first that it's a nice to have, right? That, well, we're just not that kind of company or we, we don't have time for that right now. You know, this notion that it's a nice to have to have purpose around your work. Mm-mm. It's an absolute must. And again, it's neurological and biological in us. So good luck as a leader trying to get out of it. <laughs> The second piece that I think is really important is, again, that idea that it's for when, right? I was talking to someone yesterday who said, have you noticed that like when never comes, right? When we do our next round of funding, when I'm a managing director, when I feel more rested, like when never comes. And so purpose cannot be left to when. It needs to be dealt with now in little ways. It it doesn't have to take over your life, but it is important to address. When you talk about it being biological, can you say a little bit more about the neuroscience? I think many of us have heard a lot that we need to have it, but we don't necessarily connect our physiology to why it's just nice to do. Yeah. So the the biological, and I think actually easiest illustration of it comes from like a reason to get up in the morning, right? We talk about that kind of colloquially, like when we're feeling down, I just, I don't feel like I have a reason to get up in the morning versus feeling that sense of, you know, no snooze, I'm bashing off the alarm and, and jumping out of bed into my day. And the fact is that there's actual biological research behind that. One of the ones that I think is most illustrative was out of UC Berkeley and some other partners in research. And basically what they found was that if you were one standard deviation higher in response to, I know know the reason behind my life. There's a meaning behind my life. One standard deviation increase on that is worth seven extra years of life expectancy. Really? It's pretty profound. So, you know, I tell people in our workshops, like following this advice, you're actually less likely to die or like to die now. Like I can't make you immortal, right? (laughs) That's not my area, but you are literally less likely to die to say nothing of lower risk of heart disease, lower risk of dementia, all of these very real biological things on the mental health front, great studies about how having a sense of purpose improves your resilience to hard things, hard events in our life. I don't know if anyone out there has had a hard thing happen in the last two years, maybe. And if you have, you really benefit from having this sense of purpose as a reason to get up in the morning, to not get drowned in the depression and anxiety that are not hard to understand these days when things are so nuts. So that's kind of the benefit side of things that is just simple science. My assumption is also Not only do I live longer, but I engage very differently in life. The probability that I'm highly engaged at work, more productive, more successful. I am thinking of a study that's old now, but it was a Harvard study about people who had purpose followed them. Mm. It was a longitudinal study for like 30 years or something. And people who had a sense of purpose 
out-earned, out-performed in almost every measure of life. And it was dramatically different. It wasn't like 2%. It was like yeah. 25 or 30%, well, maybe even a lot more than that, but significant quality of life as well. Yep. In our framework of, so these are the me pointers, right, of the mental and physical well-being and then performance to exactly what you just shared. The we research is real as well, right? So that's from an employee perspective, better way to live, to be engaged and motivated. But from a leader or employer perspective, also really important amidst this great resignation. And so the studies there are exactly the same, right? That people with a sense of purpose are three times more likely to report being engaged in their work, Mm -hmm. which is the main predictor for resignation or quitting. And the other one that I loved was was also out of Harvard, maybe four or five years ago. So pre all of this, which makes it feel old, but not that long ago. And the research there was that people who are engaged are 50% more productive than people who are satisfied with work. People who are inspired, i.e. have a sense of purpose, are 225% more productive. You know, again, when when I bump into skeptics, I'm not sure what more you want than this kind of research in terms of a bottom line initiative. And and again, I think the great resignation where people literally can't hire folks are starting to say, fine, fine, what can I do? Tell me more about this purpose stuff. Part of the reason I ask is because I also do work helping clients find purpose. It's hard. It's not like I sit down and fill out a spreadsheet or do something like that. So giving people solid data, I think, is really helpful for, okay, why do this? So what is the difference between purpose and inspired and how do they interconnect? It's a really good question. And this is a a third misconception actually about purpose, which is that it doesn't need to connect to justice is a piece that I think we're in the throes of, right? We're coming out of what I sometimes call like peak purpose, right? Where it was a buzzword, everyone was doing it. You saw these purpose consultants who would come in and find the purpose of your company and paint it on your cafeteria wall, which, you know, there's a time and a place and, and companies do have purpose and it is helpful sometimes to get an outside eye. But Far more important is the individual purpose and making sure that that's connected and then ladders up to the organization. And if you're not connecting it to justice and to real social and environmental impact, that's when you don't get that inspiration piece, right? If it's, we exist to help people run faster, that could be a company purpose that you're trying to connect people to, or someone could say that themselves. But so what, right? It's it's a little better than like we exist to make Q4 earnings higher, which really lacks any inspiration at all or purpose. But I think it's that extended piece of this actually matters for the good of the world, right? We exist to help people be comfortable as they get healthy is a very different idea than running faster. Actually, I want to give an example with a client I just met with an hour ago, and we're looking at his purpose and really trying to refine it. So it was about people reaching their fullest potential. So inspiring people to reach as a human being the most they can do. Mm. And the justice piece is he's working with refugee.org to bring refugees in to fill jobs. So it's connected to his work. It's a great initiative. And he's looking at not only how do you give them rudimentary jobs, but how do you build the social structure around them? And many of these people coming in who will start cleaning hotel rooms are highly skilled folks. And so how is he helping them create the pathway back to contributing in the way they contributed previously? 
to me, that's just such a beautiful example of what you're talking about. It's not just to run fast. It's not just help people make their lives easier. My question in the midst of that is, so use an extreme example. Are you going to help me find heroin easier? I mean, you want me to get my life better, (laughs) not just easier to do bad stuff. You have a sense of what you're inspiring. And so to your point, connecting it to justice, to watch him light up as he talked about, this is what I really value, is such a beautiful experience. That's an awesome example. That's, that's exactly it. Let's go into a little bit more about why now. Hmm. You've given the brilliant case for why ever. Why now? It's the dawning of a new era. You know, not, not to be melodramatic, but a lot of folks from a lot of different perspectives that I trust and learn from are confirming that in the kind of work world, right, which is where we are primarily thinking and working, there was the agricultural era, right, an age, and then there was the industrial age, and that is over. I think we can solidly say, right, like a nail is in the coffin of the industrial age, and yet our workplaces are still trying to function that way, or they were trying really hard until COVID. It's not because of COVID. This was coming for a long time anyway. Remote work, distributed workforces, global contractors, portfolio careers, like all of this. If if you go back and look at the future of work from, I don't know, 2017, it's all in there. But COVID, the amping up of technology that was happening anyway, and then a lot of these justice questions, you know, the environmental challenge and crisis that is just escalating and and in front of all of us to see the racial inequity and violence has been there for a really long time, but is now out there for all of us to see gender issues. Just all of this has been brought to the top, partially by all of us sitting at home and thinking about things more and harder while we're not commuting or racing around. I hope and think that the silver lining of this all is that it accelerates a lot of the change that was happening anyway and is painful in the moment because it's really tumultuous, right? And a lot is changing fast. But my hope is that the net suffering will be less because we've been kind of shocked into this, the change that need to happen in terms of, again, racial violence and inequity, the wage gap, the wealth gap between men and women, and then between non-white and white people. You know, I think that what we're seeing is just a very strong, dramatic reaction that, that I hope, and if we leaders each in our ways go first and choose to lead purposefully, we can have that impact that will get us quicker to justice. But there's just no choice at this point. You know, why ever? I guess you could still say it was kind of a vitamin, not an aspirin, right? And people could kind of coast and get by without building this into their leadership style. Now, again, your people will quit. You literally will not have people to hire or engage if you don't do this. So love it, hate it, whatever. My recommendation is to really get into the weeds and love it. It's not easy and it takes time and it reveals tough realities. But on the other side, or once you're a bit through the muck, it starts to get really satisfying and joyful, you know, and not in a unicorns and rainbows, oh, that was such a fun day kind of way, but even better in a really deep, heart-satisfying way. Well, and I appreciate that you say it's not unicorns and rainbows, because depending on who I talk to, I get the fluffy, we should all be happy kind of thing. And that's a nice aspiration. But as a hardcore business leader, this is about running your organization, attracting the best people, attracting capital. The ESG movement says that there are a lot of large financial institutions who won't lend you money anymore or won't lend you what you want. 
until you make those changes. Yeah. And if you make the changes, they'll lend it to you at better rate, right? I don't know. There was a great deal done for Danone, a great lending, and the interest rate was pegged to their ESG output, specifically around their B Corp scores and rating. Um, But that's really profound, right? I mean, literally reducing your cost of capital by virtue of increasing your ESG performance. That's a brilliant way to build into the capitalist system. So we're not waiting for the government to take care of it. We build it in because if there is no cost, it doesn't get the traction nearly as quickly. So you're a B Corp. I'm going to take a a bit of a shift. What drove you to make that decision and how did you navigate the purpose journey? So when I started my company, I was very intentional about it being a for-profit entity, right? Like I said, I had been in nonprofit for 10 years and just felt very misaligned with that economic system of philanthropy. So I knew I wanted it to be a for-profit. And I I honestly don't remember where or when I learned about B Corp, but I, I did at some point. And there was just no question in my mind that that was exactly how I wanted to run my company, that yes, it was going to be for-profit, mostly because I really wanted to see growth. And I knew, I learned that 501c3s have like a 0.0001% chance of getting over a million dollars a year in revenue. Really? Yeah. It's really frustratingly tiny. It's also very hard for a for-profit. Of course, we know we run businesses and coach businesses, but the chances are, I think it's something in the low single digits, right? Maybe 8% of businesses grow to a million or more. And so I was like, well, I want this is a big project. This is big work. I want it to be scalable. So I knew that, but I wanted it to be really, truly accountable to its social and environmental outcomes and impact. So we did that. The rules have changed a bit now. We actually started our certification process like four months after starting business. You can't yet now until I think six or 12 months. And in our first review, they said, you have to actually like scale some of this back because you're not going to be able to keep it. Like you have too many points, (laughs) do less. But it was really helpful in early days because, you know, I hadn't built a for-profit company before. I had run a nonprofit and run departments, but I didn't know about writing an employee handbook, you know, and so there was all this guidance about what you need to have in your employee grievance procedure or your customer complaint policy to make sure that you're being accountable to those stakeholders to say nothing of, you know, suppliers. Are you thinking about staying local? Are you thinking about working with minority-owned companies as your suppliers rather than a Fortune 100 or whatever else? So it's a bit of work, you know, and depending on your business type, more or less as a services business and now fully remote, it's a little bit easier for sure than if you've got a manufacturing operation or anything like that. But it's just such a useful filter to have, I think. If you're conceptually, ideologically committed to doing business in this way, for now, I think B Corp is the guide of record, you know, that is most comprehensive about how to run your business. The important thing to note, in my opinion, is that it really is mostly about minimizing harm, right? So how to not put too much carbon out or how to not do wrong by your employees. There's not as much on the kind of upward creating impact side. Some of it is for sure. But I think if if you're really looking at a for-profit for purpose, you'll, you'll have to find other resources and go a bit further on that positive impact side. I've been looking a lot at circular economy because I'm writing a chapter in a book on circular and they do some brilliant work about what are the positive mechanisms well beyond recycling and upcycling. Totally. Which is so great to say. It's like, oh, I, I didn't even know that up was an option. I was just trying to get to you know neutral, but no, we can be really regenerative and positive, which is exciting. 
one of my clients is looking at hemp production and he said it's the only product that is carbon negative. So it can be input to steel manufacturing and some other, or concrete, I know, maybe not steel, but concrete. So interesting that it can replace some really dirty industries. Yeah. Again, stuff that we didn't know that we'll get smarter on. Yeah. What do you say to the leader that says, I'm just not that kind of leader. I lead for results, not for purpose. Like, I don't get this purpose thing. Kind of like years ago, people didn't get the vision thing. Look, if you want results only out of machines then maybe you've got a path. <laughs> I am not deeply into the mechanical field, so I may be missing something, but I don't know any machines that aren't made by humans at some point or serviced by humans. And so I, I just think that ship has sailed. It's an, it's an outdated wish. And so if you lead people, you have got to lead purpose, you know, just like you care that hopefully I presume, you know, you care that they're healthy to come to work then this is part of it. Mm -hmm. Talk about regenerative and positive, right? This is not about like, fine, we'll put in a ping pong table and you can have summer Fridays and leave at three. Fine, right? If, if that was kind of what was getting us to like people not eating work and being like, okay, I won't quit. Having this purpose conversation, which again, doesn't have to be rocket science. You know, it's, it's very simple. It may not be easy all the time, but it's very simple. And it is just about primarily human action. Like there are things that you can buy to improve your purpose integration, but you don't have to. So simply by asking folks like, you know, hey, what was your best moment this week? Or telling folks, you know, I, I know you probably don't have opportunity to hear customer feedback, but I got this email that said that our bagels made this kid's seventh birthday party. And it's been a really rough year quarantining at home. And he was kind of angry about his birthday, didn't know who could come and his best friend couldn't. Then we had these bagels and it was a really joyful moment. And I know you use organic wheat and that's so cool. So like, thank you. And please keep making the bagels. Right. It's a super mundane example. And, and your finance person wouldn't have seen that, nor your chef, nor your frontline cashier, you know, or, or the coder who built your delivery platform. And so to broadcast that, that's what I'm talking about. It's just like sh connect people from the mundane hard work that we're all doing to this cool thing, whether it's a seven-year-old's birthday or carbon neutral hemp or anything in between. So then how do you connect individual purpose, group purpose, and organizational, because the example you gave is a brilliant example. And it seems like there are one-off things, but there are also systemic ways to build it into our culture and systems. Totally. So I'll give some examples, but, but systematically, I interviewed the CEO of NRG, Energy, the, it's a Fortune 500 energy firm. And he had this very early respect and love for the energy sector because of the complexity and you know the geopolitics involved and, and the fundamental nature of energy to get us all where we're going and stay healthy and happy. And so he has this really strong sense of purpose. And you know, the energy sector is tough, especially these days, a lot of pressure in all directions. And so they went through an exercise where they asked every person, what is your purpose? You know, why do you come to work every day? And those answers ranged broadly and then, you know, had sessions in small groups with direct leaders or managers or teams to say, well, cool, I'm so glad that that's why you come. And, and here's what it connects to, right, is, is powering the world democratically and safely and cleanly. Isn't that great? Again, it's, it's not that 
you need a company of, you know, if you have 5,000 employees, you have to find 5,000 people whose purpose is to power the world democratically and, and cleanly, right? You, you don't need little mini-me's who have that same purpose. That's not the goal here. But you need to ask what their purpose is, and then you need to support on an ongoing basis the connection between those things because it's not going to be a perfect fit, right? Hopefully it's going to be some sort of a Venn diagram where I see, okay, here's my purpose and here's the company purpose. And oh, right, there's this cool overlap where we're super aligned. And so this work is still the right place for me to be and it's energizing for me to come in. So to use an example there, someone's purpose might be, my purpose is to raise a happy, healthy, and energetic family. Awesome. The way that you do that is maybe a job at Energy where there's good healthcare benefits and your manager gets it if you want to go to soccer practice, you know, some Thursday afternoons or whatever the pieces might be. So you have nothing to do with the energy sector per se, but energy is, is values aligned, right? And it's enabling this individual purpose. Great. You might have another employee who's like, my purpose is to be part of the clean energy revolution, right? And they've had that jolt or that burst since childhood or since their masters or whatever it might be. And then awesome, right? That can be a no-brainer as long as Mauricio and the team at NRG stay on the path toward cleaner energy and, and so forth. I think that's what makes a lot of leaders fearful and anxious about diving into some of this work is like, what if it doesn't line up? Like, is everybody just going to leave? And I think that's where we have to really take the step of going first and asking the question and being ready for the fact that, first of all, fundamentally, people don't want to leave their jobs. It's scary. It's risky. It's effortful, right? So an object in motion will continue in motion unless pushed otherwise. But if some people are pushed that hard by exploring and seeing really a, a disconnect between their purpose and the company purpose, they will leave. And you know what? Thank your lucky stars because they weren't being productive and they were holding a seat of someone else who does have that purpose and is aligned. The connection between these two is still really foggy for a lot of folks, partially to the fault of the purpose industry, if you will, that focused so hard on organizational purpose for so long. In all the work that I've done, I've seen so much more of those magic ahas of like, oh yeah, that totally sinks. I see it. And maybe it's even a stretch that I'm kind of like, you do? Okay, great. But just by fact of, of the company asking and opening that conversation, I think people are really willing to make those connections. I love that. I'm working with a client right now. The CEO talks about they serve unbanked and underbanked people, helping them get technology to work in the digital economy. So CEO is committed to that. COO is not. Mm. But his thing is creating an enterprise where their employees are treated safely. They can have reliable work. They can commit to buying houses and cars, and they know that they're not going to get let go as soon as there's a fluctuation in the market. So it's interesting to see that Venn diagram isn't always, well, I care about technology and unbanked. I do, but my reason for getting up in the morning is running a company that supports a number of hundreds of families to have a productive life. Totally. I love that they're different, that they had the courage to share that they're different. Yeah. Part of the reason I asked the question, how do you connect them? Because that's now the step. We have an organizational purpose and individual purposes. 
and we're telling the stories, but now it's time to start weaving it into the culture and putting slogans on walls. Yeah. It's not that it's just, oh, I see how it connects. Great. And I'm happy here forever. There is creative tension, right? There's tension between that. I can imagine, you know, the CEO is like, you know, we're committed to these unbanked and the COO is saying, is that enough of a profit margin to support these salaries? Like that's a very real tension, right? That's what we live with all the time in the work of profit versus purpose, you know, and sometimes they're just magically aligned and amazing, but a lot of times, probably more often, there is some tension there, but creativity doesn't come from a lack of tension. To the contrary, you can only have it in that friction, you know, of, okay, pull this way, pull that way, and, and keep having that dialogue. So that's where you need some of these trackers or frameworks or dashboards. You know, we, we talk about the spheres of impact, but you have to have systems and tools in place to keep an eye on those things to make sure that everyone's individual tank is filled up enough, regardless of how, you know, where the company is, is at this moment. We've touched really well on what is purpose, why is purpose, why do we care, gave good examples of how you get there. Let's talk about now more of the structural side for now I have it Mm -hmm. and my organization has it. So what? So the kind of our simple and overarching framework that we've alluded to, but is worth maybe just fleshing out a little bit is that me, we world, you know, that you in that quote that you started with, right? And so this is kind of a a simplified version, but it works and it's so simple and universal that this is where I recommend people start. And so it's literally just keeping those three dimensions in mind. And then in your quarterly planning sessions or in your performance reviews, in your self-reflection about the week, you know, in as many moments as possible to really link back to, okay, so what does this decision mean for me and for the other me's around me, right? What does this mean for individuals in terms of our work balance, in terms of our intellectual stimulation, in terms of the creativity? What is this going to do to that? And then secondly, we, right? And that's your team or the entire organization. So what is this decision going to do to our profitability and our ability to be stable long-term and pay living slash generous wages and just really connecting it back there? And then finally, the world. What is this decision going to mean for those unbanked folks, right? And what is it going to mean for white unbanked folks versus black unbanked folks or immigrant unbanked folks who weren't born here, you know, and just really thinking out those impacts beyond your immediate stakeholders in any decision, large or small, you know? And and so really, I mean, obviously if you're thinking about a five-year strategy, it can be, you know, a multi-day part of that work, but it can also be 45 seconds at the beginning of a meeting in your head silently or explicitly with a team it doesn't sound fluffy. It's like very intuitive and tangible. You know, yep, there's a me, there's a we, and there's a world around us. Like it's, it's pretty hard to fight with any of that. So the spheres of impact get a little bit more granular and in the weeds and, and happy to go there too. But I think the maybe world is a really nice place to start. I love that when we start a meeting, we talk about the intention. When we're making decisions it's part of our framework. This is just how we do it. These kinds of decisions, not do I get a lunch here or there, but major acquisitions, major investments, that stuff. Yeah. Because people talk about people, profit and planet, but I don't always see it go from words to systems in the organization. Yeah. And look, there's plenty of systems that we can help people put in when they're ready to really do that. But this is literally a filter. It's a question. It's a mindset. 
of course, then a next level is, do you do that with your values? You know, do you filter your decisions according to your values? But this is like kindergarten of that. Like you don't even have to agree on your values. It makes it easier. And and again, I do recommend that eventually, but for now it's just, everyone has a me, a we, and a world. And so, you know, if your values aren't aligned, then it'll get a little hairier, but it is just such a simple introductory way to start to build this thinking in. And why not to your lunch decision, right? Like, am I going to eat cheap, fast McDonald's? Because I'm so pressured in a rush. Well, that's going to make me feel tired. It's bad for my heart. So I can't live to see my grandkids, you know, on, on the me level. On the we level, it's not supporting that cool new wrap shop that I saw just opened next door. And mm-hmm. it's a bad influence on my team because they're going to ask me to pick up nuggets as well. We're all tired now and have heart disease. <laughs> and on the world level, it's, you know, a corporation that I may not feel great about in terms of values alignment, in terms of where they source their meat or, you know, what they do in terms of kids' health. And so maybe I will go to the wrap shop, even though it's going to take me five to seven minutes longer and maybe be two or three dollars more expensive. I'm ready to make that commitment. And I do make choices actually on where I eat lunch or where I eat. Of course, right? Yeah. Because health matters. I can't do what I do unless I attend to that. Most of the time, I still eat chocolate. Chocolate is very good for your heart. I support that. (laughs) Fair trade, you're good. I'm not sure my balance of chocolate consumption is. (laughs) So let's go more into the systems again. I love that you mentioned the tension between my two executives and the reality that just because I have a purpose doesn't make every decision easy. We're still making tough trade-offs in everything we do. Yeah. I think it brings clarity, if not ease, you know? So again, it's it's that simple, but not easy necessarily. And, and look, the world is super complex, right? <laughs> There's a great piece worth sharing. I don't think everyone has seen The Good Place yet, the sitcom. Um, but there was this one episode, it's, it's about kind of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And so there's a scoring system, right? And there are these angels, these kind of eternal 5,000-year-old angels who are doing the scores and watching us humans die and get sorted. (laughs) And there's a breakdown in the system. So one of the angels goes down to earth, you know, 4,000 years after her actual time here and to figure out like, what's going on? Why is the system so broken? And she comes back and she's like, y'all, it is really complicated to be a human right now. In 1898, you gave your grandmother flowers and you got 12 points. Great. Good job. In 2021, if you give your grandmother flowers, you get 12 points because grandma's happy. You get minus 34 for the carbon credits of getting the roses to you. You get minus 78 for the child labor who picked the flowers. And you get minus 10 if it wasn't a local florist. So it's really complicated, you know? And, And so that's part of what it is. Like, I think having a sense of purpose, you know, I've talked to 130 CEOs and chief people officers for the research behind this book in the last 10 months. And all of them uniformly have said, some more than others, it helps. It is our guiding star. It's the red thread that informs what we do. And so when we're really in it, you know, which we get into it because it's business and it's pressured. But when we really connect to the purpose of what we're doing and lay over the values with which we want to do it, the decision is pretty clear. But that doesn't mean that it's an easy decision that doesn't have any downside. It doesn't mean that we even know how to achieve that decision because the world is so complex, right? And where are we going to lose points, even though our intent is this really positive thing? 
that's part of this new age. It's not easy anymore, right? The industrial age was about automation and mass production and streamlining and reducing duplication and and specialization, right? You put the widget and you turn the widget and you tighten the widget and then you put it on the line. Now it's like, what should the widget be named? And then figure out what it's going to do and then start to think about who it's going to do that for and ask them what it should do. And so these aren't easy decisions or processes. They're simple. We want a widget to help reduce the wealth gap in this country. Great. How do you do it? My goodness, that's not easy. Well, one, no more flowers for grandma. (laughs) It's a major point loser. Bake her some cake with organic flour. King Arthur's, I highly recommend. (laughs) I do need to watch the show. It's so good. I want to learn more about your research Because it is such a poignant observation that even pre-COVID, we were all worried about lean and, you know, reducing waste and just in time and all that stuff. Before that, it was total quality management. Each system kind of built on each other to reduce the amount of effort and resources. And now with supply chain disruption, shipping, we've got one pressure of AI and robotic process automation. And then we've got the opposing pressure that says, I need to keep a buffer stock of a whole lot more because my ship's stuck in the port of Los Angeles. And even if I get it off, then I have to wait for trucks to bring it to me. And there's a trucker shortage. The complexity post-COVID, and then we add in the weather issues and climate issues and social justice and all of those influence the complexity of making a simple decision like buying flowers. Or do I just pick them out of my neighbor's yard and hope they don't notice? I probably get negative points for that too. (laughs) So what did you learn in your research? Because it's probably more current than what most of our listeners are, are reading yet. Number one is that the change has happened, right? It's that quote from the 80s, I believe, that technology, the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. Like that's real. And so if you're not having serious conversations about this mm-hmm. with yourself, first of all, me, <laughs> and in your teams and your with your investors, we, and in the world to learn from other folks outside of your doors, how it needs to be, you're behind and someone is going to eat your lunch. You know, this is the kind of like fear piece of it that I talk about clients. I'm like, that's real. If, if you are a believer that only the paranoid survive, you better get paranoid about getting more purposeful. And it's kind of a weird way to get there, but whatever works, it'll have to be authentic at some point. You can't just paranoidly put on a purpose face. So that's the first point is just, you know, I spoke with again, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 CEOs, Accenture, NRG, right? These big companies. I spoke with three-person firms who are employing formerly incarcerated folks to make beautiful jewelry in Detroit and everything that you can imagine in between. B Corps, nonprofits, foundations, for-profits, family companies, startups, all of the things. And found 130 folks who are really serious about this, who referred me to dozens more that were wrangling in slowly. So that's the first point is it's here. Get on board or stay behind and flail, frankly. And watch the gap widen. Exactly. Exactly. It's a good way to put it. The second thing that's really interesting, and we're preparing to do a lot of work on this in 2021, is the critical foundation of a CEO-CPO or CHRO partnership. For people who don't know the terminology, CPO-CHRO, I think everyone knows CEO. 
So CHRO, the chief HR officer, which is a bustling, booming field to be in, or chief people officer, what we find is that a chief people officer title is a little bit of a signal of being that much more future thinking and future forward, right? That it's not about the HR of compliance and tracking vacation days and benefit packages. It's about human thriving and development and learning, you know, and yes, compliance needs to be done. But the gift of the industrial revolution is that we built this beautiful technology that can do so much of that. And so humans don't have to do that repetitive, boring work. They can now help human flourishing, right? And and coach people and run workshops and all of that. The finding is that to have a CEO who's strongly aligned and strongly in touch and strongly collaborative with this people person, right, the chief people person, whatever their title might be, maybe it's a senior VP or otherwise, is so fundamental, right? Because the CEO needs to guide the ship and the business and the vision and all of that. And hopefully the ones we spoke to are are certainly recognizing that they are people first, Mm -hmm. but then they need a partner to really hold people first, right? They need to hold the business first. That's the job of the CEO, no matter how people oriented they are. And then they have this partner who they empower, who they trust, who they work closely and frequently with, who can hold the people first. And you and I are completely aligned on this. Works for the vision and the mission. My job is to deliver on that. And I balance each of the stakeholders. Chief people officer, also vision first, but people, the people are the how. And I would even just say that if they have a good leadership team, they can be truly people first. Mm -hmm. They can't go against the vision, right? But they are there to hold and support and love and grow those humans who are making the vision happen. And they really can be that voice. Again, assuming that not only the CEO is the balance, but also the CFO and this, you know, you have a whole leadership team to hold that. And so it's actually really powerful and magic is what we saw when they are literally making the humans who work here okay and on the path to thriving. That was really interesting and cool to see. A recruiting firm that I spoke with who focuses on diversity and was actually just named top 10 in an industry report up against like Spencer Stewart and you know all of the kind of big names that we know. This is a, a much smaller boutique firm named Rich Talent Group led by a woman. And they said, I don't remember by what factor, I want to say at least twice the searches that they're getting are for chief people officers. It's just this new kind of thing. CHRO didn't always exist. And if it did, it was much more of that like compliance legal approach. So I think it's a very cool frontier and a first step that I would encourage a lot of people to think about. If, if you don't already have that person on your team, really think about elevating the people person that you do have and developing a really deep strategic partnership there and that healthy tension, right? There are going to be the same poles or, or similar nature of poles between the business and the vision and the people and they're thriving. Well, and then in technology and what do we automate? What do people do? What do robots do? Yep. And again, healthy tension. Right. Totally. Which there really can be a lot of people. And there are some people who are well-suited for automated tasks. And that's a really exciting opportunity, right? To get people who are neurologically diverse doing those roles. But for people who aren't, it's brutal to do those tasks. And so it's really empowering to outsource them. I think what we need to move to is not great, we can fire all those people and just keep costs down, but saying, gosh, what are the gaps that have cropped up, especially in these last two years that we need humans to do, right? And it is those human tasks. It's coaching and having more people, business partners who can really support all these new managers that have never managed before and need human help. So I think there's there's big opportunity there, but it takes that tension between two really empowered leaders. 
What else have you taken away as a key component from the research and what recommendations are you making based on it? Those are the first two, you know, it's here, CEO, CHR partnership. And then the third piece, I think really is kind of like a Nike ripoff. Just do it. The people that we're interviewing are at the vanguard of this and doing the most. And they're so self-aware that it's so imperfect and there, there's no playbook for this. They're super keen to be collaborative. You know, that's why they took half an hour of their busy days, in some cases, two hours to speak with me and share their insights. But we're just not there yet. There's no playbook. And we're on a very visible stage right now as CEOs or CHROs. And so everything is so loaded and there's constant risk of being canceled. You know, goodness forbid you do the wrong thing. A lot of the people I spoke with said, I decided that I was ready to be fired for doing a certain thing, right? In one case, it was a CEO making a statement about George Floyd's murder last summer. Mm. In another case, it was recommending a white supremacy awareness workshop for the leadership team as a starting point. And others were that issue of racism and interpersonal justice is what's been most up. So those are the hottest issues. People aren't quite as worried about like a carbon cutting initiative or those things maybe cost money or are creative or experimental, but they're a little less loaded. So these two people in particular said, you know, I, I decided that I, I was so committed to doing this, that if it meant I would get fired, you know, the, the CEO said, I talked to my wife and said, how do you feel if the board doesn't like this and fires me? Or the woman in the HR role said, you know, I, I thought about my budget and I made a plan for where I was and if I could afford to get let go for this and so visibly. And in both cases, they were totally embraced and rewarded and followed, right? They went first. And sure enough, the CEO's whole peer group of CEOs were like, hey, could you just forward me that language? I think you're right. I should do something. Having said, nah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lift my head up on this one. So real ripple impact. And that other, the second one, the whole company at a director level and higher is now going through that white supremacy awareness training. Wow. Look, we can look at Emmanuel Faber of a case of doing it and being willing to get fired and getting fired. <laughs> and I'm sure somebody has, or a lot of people. And a lot of people have, right? I mean, he was the Janone case. He's a very visible one that I happen to know. I'm, I'm sure there are hundreds or thousands of others that I'm not privy to. The folks I talk to, look, are in leadership positions, probably have financial privilege to the point that they could afford to be fired and not hired for a year or whatever it might be. You know, there's privilege in that. But the uniform response, and, and I see this in our much lower employees, lower level, earlier stage employees that I talked to too, I would rather be in integrity with myself and do what I know to be in line with my purpose and the justice that I seek in the world than to stick around and have to give that up. And I think we're just seeing more and more people get in touch with that. We all have it, that sense of, you know, there are a few percent of the population who are narcissistic or sociopathic or psychopathic and they don't. But the other 97% of us don't want to release more carbon than we need or be misogynistic or perpetuate the racial wealth gap, but we don't yet know how to do otherwise. So we need to take the time to educate ourselves and to get smart. But when we take the time and, and make the time to get in touch with that, it is really rewarding and, and people don't tend to look back. So as you talk about this, while I am committed to all the same things, I have this pit in my stomach that there are days I'm lucky to get dressed, get my work done. I don't get to work out. I generally don't eat McNuggets for dinner, but I barely make it through my day. Now I have to think about all the carmen emitting and should I take my car or my bicycle, but I don't have time in my schedule to ride my bike to a meeting. 
I order from Blue Apron on the box. It says I use 25% less carbon. But how the hell is that true? Because you're delivering it to my door. When I go to the grocery store, I want to buy the soft toilet paper that's bleached. I don't care if it's bleached, but I want it to be soft, not that stuff from my co-op. It really kind of hurts. <laughs> How do you balance all of this stuff? Yeah. So tactical suggestions. Seventh generation has taken hold in my family. It was like a little bit of a shift, but it, it doesn't hurt. It's pretty darn good toilet paper. Paper towels, we're still stuck with bounty. Like the other stuff just doesn't absorb. So I, I get it. <laughs> it's a journey. The recommendation that we're making is start with me. I don't care how much, how many times or what kind, but whatever exercise makes you feel good in your body, you've got to do it. And there's going to be weeks when it gets busy or seasons and, and that's okay, but it can't be forever. And especially because you're a leader, you've just got to do it. You've got to look at the other stuff and figure out what's got to go. And it's a whole combination, right? It's not just mm -hmm. exercise or, or you know calorie count, but between food and sleep and some kind of mindfulness and exercise and joy and creativity and time in nature, you've got to make a cocktail that is okay to at least keep you at baseline. And on good weeks, you can do a bit more and you can scrimp on down weeks and catch up, but you can't give that up. You're not doing anything else. I promise. Think what you will. In a sustainable way, you're not contributing as well as you could. And now because you're a leader, you're influencing other people to equally cut themselves short and cut their own contributions short. So I get it. Of course, you can't think about all of that. And, and we don't ask you to, right? It needs to start with the me, not in a selfish, narcissistic way. Like it's, it's all a cycle, but you have to get that at least in your awareness of like, okay, where am I and what's the plan to get to okay? And now you can start thinking a little bit, okay, how am I being sure that I'm messaging that to my team really explicitly? There is a 20-minute nap on my afternoon schedule. Nobody can schedule calls over it. It's called nap. So people are super clear about what I'm doing, right? And that's really important to me. I, I then have four hours of work time after that I wouldn't have otherwise, right? That I just blearily get through an hour or two of emails with typos in them. So it really does start there. And, and then look, because of the work you're doing, I'm sure the work your listeners are doing, we're not probably just going to go into you know a, a hole for nine months until our well-being is perfect and we have radiant skin and we're perfectly rested. So then you start the other stuff or, or keep doing the other stuff really intentionally. you know. And on the we level, it's about making sure they're okay and making sure they're doing the me stuff first and foremost. At this moment in time, I think that's the most important thing for leaders to be doing. On the world level, you're doing whatever learning you need to be. If you're not informed about environmental stuff, you don't have to get super technical and read all of Paul Hawkins' drawdown, but you need to read some newspaper articles or, you know, just get in touch that like there is a crisis and this is how it's playing out in my neighborhood, maybe, or, you know, whatever piece of that you have an appetite for. And same, social justice, you know, figure out why gender is such a big deal now. Why is everyone adding their pronouns? Or if you're deeply aware and involved, great, start making some contributions or getting active with your legislators. There's no no shame in the approach of how I see this all changing the world. It's just about recognizing where you are. And from there, you'll take some steps. But I have every faith and I have all the evidence over the last 10 years that people do that, right? If they actually take the time to tune in and get aware to their well-being, to their team and the issues they care about in the world, then it's really motivating. We want to leave the world a better place. And so the rest follows. Thank you. That sounded way less frightening to me because I do most of it. I probably do all of it, but I get stuck in that I should be doing more. 
not a helpful feeling, right? <laughs> like it's, it's just not. Yeah. <laughs> Hence my reaction to you was like, crap, how can I do all of that and what I'm doing? Yeah. It's a fine balance, right? Between complacency and giving yourself a, a pass and striving and learning and wanting to do more. But again, the people who I bump into, well, the people who come forth as purposeful leaders or curious about becoming purposeful leaders are not likely to let themselves off the hook. It really does become this magnificent upward spiral, especially as they get their teams involved and then can all really cover if somebody doesn't have their eye on the ball on the pronoun issues, somebody's going to bring it up, you know, and, oh, okay, great. Yeah. Let's look into this. I don't know. What's the answer? So it, it really becomes literally a team sport if you empower folks and tell them that their purpose is welcome here and help them connect the dots to how that could look. That's one of my big takeaways is how do we help people be committed to finding their purpose and creating an environment where we welcome it, we support it, and we help you connect it to the organization's purpose, even if it's not the logical connection, like my great job allows me to move my kids down the street into a better school district. That's a big purpose, but it may not be aligned with the company. Mm. Doesn't matter. So what do you, as we close down, what do you want our listeners to walk away with? I think a sense of fun and joy and lightness around purpose. My worst fear or my biggest regret is when I freak people out into shoulds and they walk off head down, like beating themselves up and they go home and they sign up for carbon credits for a month and then it dies and they go back to, you know, that's, that's not the goal. It really is to think like there are 8 billion purposes out there waiting to be done. And so you don't have to fix global warming and racial injustice and the wage gap. You only have to do one eight billionth of that work and you have to do it because it's like the litter problem. If all of us drop something, the park is really ugly. But if we all pick up one piece, it's a beautiful world, you know? And, and I think we're just, we're at that tipping point and that transformation moment where that really can be magical and beautiful. And so go first, ask somebody tomorrow about their purpose, you know, or um, I can share as follow-up if it's helpful, an article in which I share a really simple formula for your purpose. Just draft, again, light, easy. It's not going to be etched on your tombstone. Don't sweat it. Just put down some words and sit with them and, and see how they feel. But yeah, go first and play, play with purpose. I love the idea that you have to do one eight billionth of what's on the planet. With the pandemic, there are no extra people, no extra parts in the bin. We all have something to do that's important. And we're now invited to step in if we hadn't before. Yeah. So thank you so much now. Thank you guys. Let's close by giving name of the book again. And where would people reach you? Do you have a blog? Yeah. So the name of the book has actually evolved because of all of this research, and it's going first, an invitation to find the courage to lead purposefully and inspire action. To, you, you nailed it. You, you covered that invitation piece, right? This is not about shaming or forcing or pressuring. It is truly an invitation to step in. Uh, you can find me and the book at my website, uh, nellderekdebevoise.com. I'm also really easy and quite active on LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out there if you have a specific inquiry or thought or question. And my companies are inspiringcapital.ly, which does leadership development. We're a B Corp. 
And then Purposeful Growth Institute is a nonprofit that helps to place diverse and purpose-driven talent in roles. So purposefulgrowth.org, newly minted and accepting applications from employers who are looking for talent. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time, for all of the research you're doing and for the beautiful contribution you're making to the world. So welcome. Thank you, Maureen. It was a great conversation. 